This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Wiley, Texas. Wiley is a suburb of Dallas that was originally called Nickelville when it was established in the 1870s, reportedly after the name of the town's first store. By 1886, three major railroads brought business to the city, and this led to the incorporation of Wiley in 1887. Wiley was named for Lieutenant Colonel William D. Wiley, who was the right-of-way agent for the railroad and a Civil War veteran. During the late 1940s and 50s, the city was nicknamed Wide Awake Wiley because of many late-night get-togethers of its residents and the businesses that stayed open until midnight on some evenings. Wiley has benefited from its location just north of Dallas, and as the Dallasites look for more space, they moved to the suburbs. In 1980, Wiley had almost 3,100 residents and has almost doubled in size every 10 years. But that year, a young mother of two found that the promise of an idyllic suburban lifestyle was only a dream. Alan and Betty Gore met at Southwestern College in Kansas. Alan was a senior and a teaching assistant in Betty's freshman math class. Although Betty had boyfriends before Alan, Betty was the first girl Alan dated and he fell for her loving her uncomplicated innocence. The two were married in 1970 in a Methodist church surrounded by family and friends. Alan enjoyed computer programming and electronics, and Betty was getting her teaching credential. The two settled into a modest lifestyle. Betty was very organized and regimented. She loved knowing where Alan was at all times, having meals at exactly the same time every day, and planning for the future. She took comfort having a very planned life, sometimes experiencing physical symptoms if there was any interruption in plans or if Alan had to go out of town for business. By the way, Betty, I believe, was 20 years old when she got married, and I think Alan was 23 or 24. That's They were babies. Yeah, yeah. Okay, especially her. Yeah. In 1973, Alan was hired at Collins Radio, which later merged with Rockwell International, and he and Betty moved to the company's headquarters in Richardson, Texas. They found a three-bedroom tract home in the booming Dallas suburb of Plano, just north of Richardson. After settling into their new home, Betty became pregnant with their first child. She experienced significant morning sickness and depression, but, as was common at the time, Betty was very secretive about it and did not share her struggles with Alan. Thankfully, her depression abated after baby Alyssa was born. Betty eventually found a job as a second-grade teacher, but quickly developed a reputation of being overly stern and too much of a perfectionist. At about that same time, Alan was taking more out-of-town trips for work than Betty would have liked. She did not like being home alone with baby Alyssa. In February of 1977, Alan asked his boss to be transferred to a position that would allow him to work exclusively in Dallas because Betty did not want him away from home so much. 
Two months later, Betty and Alan bought a house in Wiley, Texas, 10 miles east of Plano. With a recommendation from Betty's best friend, Betty was able to secure a teaching position. The Gores started attending a new Methodist church in Lucas, and Alan felt like they were starting over. Betty and Alan settled into Wiley and in 1979 had another baby girl named Bethany, who was five years younger than Alyssa. Alan Gore left Rockwell and accepted a job with a small electronics firm that dealt primarily in answering machines for phones, which at the time was very cutting edge. He liked the camaraderie of working in a small office, but he was also back to traveling again. Betty still hated him being away. On the afternoon of Friday, June 13, 1980, Alan flew to St. Paul, Minnesota to do some on-site technical work for 3M, a company client. He told Betty he would call her from the airport before his 4.30 p.m. flight. At this time, baby Bethany was one and Alyssa was six. Betty thought she may be pregnant again and was not happy because her pregnancies were difficult and she felt she had too much on her plate already. Alan called Betty from the airport, but there was no answer. Once Alan was checked into his hotel, he called Betty again at approximately 7.45 p.m. Again, there was no answer. Alan could not think of where Betty would have gone with her regimented schedule. By the way, Kath, when I was reading the book and most of the information from this podcast came from a book called Evidence of Love. It was written in 1983 by John Bloom and Jim Atkinson. And in here they were saying how frantic Alan started getting because Betty apparently did not do anything off of her schedule. So, for example, if Alan was gone, Betty did not even grocery shop if she had the baby. Everything was a schedule. Everything was a plan. And so when he couldn't get a hold of her twice in one night, he was freaking out. Well, especially at night when the kids should have been in bed. Exactly. Alan called directory assistance for Wiley, Texas. Do you remember when you used to call directory assistance and they would say, <laughs> what city, please? 411. Yeah. <laughs> and asked for the number for his next door neighbor, Richard Parker. Alan asked Richard to go knock on his door. There was no answer, so Alan then called Candy Montgomery, a woman who was supposed to have taken Alan's daughter, six-year-old Alyssa, home from Bible camp that day. Alyssa had spent the night at the Montgomery's because she was best friends with their daughter. When Alan called that night, Candy told him that she had seen Betty in the morning when she went to pick up Alyssa's bathing suit. Alyssa was spending a second night at the Montgomery's, so Candy was going to take Alyssa to swim lessons. Candy said Betty seemed fine, but acted like she was in a hurry for Candy to leave. Alan went to dinner with his colleagues in St. Paul. When he returned to his hotel room, he phoned home again without any luck. Alan eventually convinced three of his neighbors to break into his house at any cost and check on his family. The front door had actually been unlocked. The men found one-year-old Bethany crying in her crib with a red, blotchy face and skin stained with her own excrement. Oh, poor little baby girl. I know, I know. So they knew it was obvious that she had been home alone by herself. For a long time. For a long time, exactly. So Richard gave his wife the baby and told his wife to call the police. He then went home and got his handgun and came back to the Gore's house. So the men came in and they searched the left side of the house first and they found the baby obviously in her room. The two other rooms were empty. Then they looked through the kitchen and the living room. 
From the living room, there was a door that entered into this utility room. And on the other side of that utility room was a garage, which opened onto a back alley. So they clear the bedrooms. They see that nobody's in the kitchen. Nobody's in the living room. So the utility room was about 12 feet by 6 feet. So one of the men walks in and yells, oh, my God, don't go any further. He slams the door without entering the utility room and says, she's dead. Now, this guy's name was Lester, and he had not seen her body. All he saw was lots of blood, which was thick and congealed and glistening on the utility room floor. And he later said that he had some sixth sense that overcame him, that he might see something that was too private for him to see. Oh, wow. I know. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. Betty Gore was 30 years old. Wow. I know. So at that moment, the phone rang and it was Alan asking his neighbors what happened. So this guy named Jerry says, I'm afraid it's not good. But he couldn't find the words to describe the scene. So he tells Alan, don't worry about Bethany. She's okay. So Alan asks, well, what about Betty? And Jerry said, it looks like she's been shot. Alan immediately thought of suicide, but they didn't have a gun. Officer Johnny Lee Bridge Farmer, I love that name, Johnny Lee Bridge Farmer, (laughs) he was the first on the scene at 11.18 p.m. Now, this is a Friday night. The neighbor, Richard, directed him to the body, and when the officer opened the utility room door, he took one look and closed it again and then called for support. God, how bad must that scene have been? Yeah, ugly, very ugly. So in this 12 by 6 foot room, there was a washer, dryer, freezer, and a cabinet. And apparently Betty was lying face up. Her knees were locked as though she had died standing at attention and then been laid on the floor. Like military standing at attention and laid on the floor? Yes, exactly. The right side of her face appeared to be gone. A few feet from Betty was a heavy, wooden-handled, three-foot-long axe. By 11.30, 15 minutes after finding Betty's body, the news was spreading throughout the neighborhood quickly. The three men who found the body all called their wives, who then called friends, who then called more friends. Mm Mm-hmm. The book talks about how one of the neighbors was spreading the news by car. So she <laughs> it was, was like, like driving next yes, door. Yes, like driving. And then door. she'd run up and knock on somebody. And then she'd get back in her car, run up and knock on it. So I was like, oh, wow. Like, you know, the town crier. No kidding. <laughs> Modern day for, you know, the 80s. Exactly. <laughs> three officers and the three men who found the body and a local dentist who was a friend of Alan Gore's were all present at the scene. Neighbors were milling about on the Gore's front lawn And the crime scene was becoming crowded. Okay, this was kind of funny. In the book, it talks about how the dentist finds out that Betty Gore has been murdered. So he goes in. (laughs) He goes in and he starts asking the officers, what did you see? What did you touch? He was like, oh, I'm supposed to be an investigator. He probably always wanted to be a cop. Totally. (laughs) But the dentist was in the book a number of times. I'm like, this guy's cracking me up. Royce Abbott, who had been the Wiley police chief exactly one month, was called to the scene. After looking in the utility room, the chief's attention was drawn to the Dallas Morning News, which was on the breakfast table. The newspaper was folded to highlight a movie review from The Shining, a story based on a Stephen King novel about a psychopathic axe murderer. Great book and great movie. I have never seen the movie. Oh, I I read the book because I love Stephen King. Same. 
So, you know when I lived in Maine? Mm-hmm. Yes, one of your many travels. <laughs> while, I, while I was here in my boring self, with I, my boring life. Which... <laughs> with your husband, who's all walking on roofs. <laughs> well, I guess he was your boyfriend. But, so we're in Maine, and we're at a lake, and unlike California, it gets dark because they don't have streetlights everywhere. It oh, isn't like a cities of light, and so especially in Maine. So we would go up to the upper athletic field, and it was pitch black, and we would read Stephen King novels. No way. Yes. Oh, my God. That is so awesome. <laughs> so I was pretty afraid the whole entire time I was there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it was, it was super fun. That is, oh, that's so legit. Chief Abbott called the sheriff's department for backup. Officers were ordered to patrol the surrounding streets looking for suspicious characters. The chief was particularly interested in the fact that Betty's husband, Alan, was out of town, but nobody knew about it until he called Richard. In addition, the garage door was wide open all night when ordinarily it would have been closed. The open garage door led to the utility room. The chief called the Collin County Sheriff's Office to bring camera and fingerprinting equipment, which I kind of think it's funny. Like, it tells you how small the town was that they had to call the sheriff's department to even get a camera. Yeah, exactly. Or fingerprinting equipment. Really quickly, I also kind of take a little note with calling him the chief because that's what I thought we called Chief Rodriguez. That's right. <laughs> Our friend, the chief. Our friend. Chief. Yeah, she's the chiefiest of them all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> chief Abbott took note of the fact that there were bloodstains on the bathroom bath mat, soap dish, wall tiles, and tub. He also noted that the killer had apparently taken a shower. The Gore's house phone rang and Chief Abbott picked it up. It was Alan Gore. Alan informed the chief that he last saw Betty around 8 in the morning. He immediately had his dispatcher call Dallas-Fort Worth Airport Security to find out whether Alan Gore took a Braniff flight to St. Paul, Minnesota at 4.30 that afternoon, and that was eventually confirmed. By the way, I just have to say, are we not making any jokes about Al Gore? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Is that why we keep calling him Alan? Alan Gore. We cannot call him Al Gore. He wasn't from Tennessee. He did not invent the internet. There's nothing about a hanging chad (laughs) anywhere in this story. (laughs) Hence, we'll call him Alan. (laughs) Steve Defabaugh was the investigator with Collin County Sheriff's Office who took crime scene and corpse photos. Inside the home, he saw wall-to-wall police officers, including those with no official capacity. Go ahead. Can't you imagine in a small town on a Friday night? If the dentist is there, of course there's going to be extra officers, (laughs) for God's sake. What else are they doing, going down to the Dairy Queen and trying to pick up 17-year-olds? Oh, God, I can't believe you just said that. (laughs) I didn't mean it that way. I did not mean it that way. Oh I did God. not. I meant like pick him up for loitering or like yeah. drinking when they shouldn't be. <laughs> Kathy's mind goes to the gutter always. Oh, my God. But here's the funny thing about this guy, this Steve Defabaugh. OK, uh-huh. so he gets a call. You know, you got to take some photos at a crime scene. He does not know the magnitude of what he's doing. He is running low on film. But if he wanted to get film, he would have had to gone 20 minutes in this direction. And he was like, you know what? Whatever I have on my camera is good enough. And so he gets to the most insane murder scene of his life and is like, oh, my God. I've got 10 pictures. Yeah. Like it was. (laughs) And I can't remember if they said the exact number of photos. It might have been 15, but I could be making that part up. Like, that's what I have in my head. But don't hold me to it. So he is. Oh, goodness me. Oh, my. But he walks into the crime scene and he sees everyone there and people are tromping in and out. And so he had a little bit more experience than a lot of them. 
So he was concerned about the preservation of evidence, and he knew they needed a real investigator at the crime scene. And so he tells the chief, call Dr. Irving Stone. And of course, the new chief is like, A-OK, buddy. So this Dr. Irving Stone had a doctorate in chemistry. So he was not a medical doctor, but he worked at the Dallas Institute of Forensic Sciences. And in 1972, he was hired to be chief of the physical evidence of the Institute. This guy was so interesting. In the Dallas legal circles, he was affectionately referred to as the Jewish Columbo because he was so creative in his analysis of crime scenes. Wow. Yeah, that's a compliment. That's that is a compliment. A compliment. Absolutely. Yeah. So at 2.30 in the morning, Dr. Stone arrived and immediately, immediately cleared everyone out. He must have been apoplectic he, when he yeah, saw that. Like, yeah. From the author's perspective, he was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> if he could have been like WTF, OMG, he would have. Exactly. <laughs> and by the way, he, <laughs> he brought an assistant, somebody who was used to doing the crime scenes with him, his son. He was a first year law student, and I guess he had been going to crime scenes with his dad forever. So he went for two reasons, really. His dad wanted him to take notes, and sometimes his dad needed some muscle. And he probably knew his dad's exacting nature That's and what his exactly, dad needed. exactly, exactly right. So anyway, so Dr. Stone and his son begin the slow and methodical examination of the entire scene. He dusted every surface in the bathroom, the floors, the walls. There was a red thumbprint on the freezer door in the utility room, and a left-hand palm print. Dr. Stone knew that bloody fingerprints are very rare, and they're, of course, they're a massive form of evidence because of somebody's identification attached to blood. So he also knew that you could not extract a thumbprint very well that was saved in blood unless you had exotic chemicals. That, that's what the word they use, <laughs> exotic chemicals. I don't know what those exotic chemicals were. Yeah. Exactly. I don't know what they were. But he didn't have the exotic chemicals. It could be turpentine for all we know, but it was 1980. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he tells the photographer, Defabaugh, please take a photo of this print. It's, oh. it's the best way to preserve it. And the guy short on film takes one. Oh. <laughs> but anyway. You know he was like, dang it, I had that saved for something it. else. Exactly. So after he takes the photo, Dr. Stone tries to lift the print with powder and fails, ruining the entire print. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So anyway, Dr. Stone then bagged Betty Gore's hands for trace evidence and put bags over all of the doorknobs and ordered his son to remove them. He also had his son pull up patches on the linoleum that had shoe prints. They were just doing everything. He also found a smashed pair of sunglasses in the garage, which he bagged. While he was at the scene, one of the officers comes up to him and says, hey, look what I found. In his hands was the missing sunglass lens from the pair of shattered glasses. So he wasn't even sure where the officer got the lens from, so he had to recreate the location as best he could. They worked overnight until about 6 in the morning. And at one point, another officer comes up to him and says, hey, look what I found. <laughs> and so Dr. Stone was frustrated by the process, but maintaining his patience. The officer shows him a fingernail. Now, Dr. Stone assumes that it's a fingernail from Betty Gore, and he tells the officer, just hang on to it. Well, the officer doesn't hang on to it. He puts it on a kitchen counter. So Dr. Stone takes full inventory of the numerous blood samples. They found clumps of hair from the bathroom drain. They found hair in Betty's palms also. 
a photograph of the bloody thumbprint, several bloody shoe prints, the axe with a three-foot handle, which of course had blood all over it, and he also figured the body would yield more evidence later. Dr. Stone believed the murder was not premeditated as the weapon was too strange. He also thought there were signs of a struggle everywhere. Dr. DeMaio, senior medical examiner in Dallas County, performed the autopsy. The cause of death was obvious, blunt force trauma. There were at least three groups of blows, but the pattern of the injuries did not fit any standard motives. Dr. DeMaio initially believed it was a sex crime, but upon examination of the body, concluded rape did not occur. Because Betty's face appeared mutilated for no apparent reason, Dr. DeMaio then believed it was a crime of passion. Betty's body had numerous axe wounds all over her body, most of which were inflicted while her heart was still beating. Immediately, the newspapers went crazy trying to interview anyone willing to offer an opinion. According to the Dallas Times-Herald, Betty's was the first murder in Wiley in 25 years. The community was terrified. There was no apparent reason for the attack. It was done on a nonviolent woman in the middle of the day in her own home in a nice neighborhood. As one can imagine, rumors abounded. People thought it was a copycat of the popular movie The Shining. They also believed the murderer might be psychotic. And some people also believed the person was a transient because nobody in the community would have done such a thing. Who would have left a little baby traumatized and alone all day without food and water after murdering the mother? When Alan Gore flew home, Candy Montgomery and her husband Pat brought six-year-old Alyssa home to see her father. Candy and Pat kept Alyssa protected from the truth, and now her father had to share the horrifying news that Alyssa's mother was dead. Betty's parents, Bob and Bertha Pomeroy, still lived in Kansas and drove to Texas after Alan called them to let them know their daughter was dead. When Betty's parents were driving out from Kansas to Texas, the book recounts a memory that Bertha had, and it was a memory that took place the summer she met her husband, her future husband, Bob, and he, she was 13 years old, and she and her friends had gone to a palm reader, and it was an old woman, and she looked at Betty, and she said, you're going to marry a farmer. He's going to be from out of state. You will have three children, and one of them will die. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and Betty was the firstborn, and she had two younger brothers. And That's and, creepy. And I kind of got chills. Yeah, the book played it like she would have never had this memory but for the death of her daughter, and all of a sudden it like pops back into oh, her I'm head. Oh, I'm sure that's true. The Gore house soon filled up with family and neighbors. Calls began coming in, including one from a male who said, I killed her. The man called again saying, I killed her, and if you do not keep your daughter off the street, I'll kill and rape her too. The man called twice more saying, I killed her, and I'm going to kill the kid. And at one point, he said he really didn't do it, but his girlfriend did. The call was able to be traced, but it came from a recently released mental patient. Uh. Yeah. By late Saturday, which was one day following the murder, investigators received information from a five-year-old child who said she had seen a woman come from the Gore home Friday morning, get into a station wagon, and drive off. The girl had gone to the Gore home after that, looking for Alyssa, and knocked on the door but got no answer. She was disturbed because she heard a baby crying. 
Chief Abbott figured the woman who left was Candy Montgomery because Alan Gore had told him that Candy had seen Betty earlier that day. The chief wanted to know if Candy saw anything suspicious that morning or could give the police insight into Betty's frame of mind. Sunday, June 15, 1980, was Father's Day, so this is two days after the murder. Candy went to services at the Methodist Church in Lucas, Texas, the same church to which Betty and Alan Gore belonged. All the characters in this story, except the police, are part of this Methodist church in Lucas. It doesn't surprise me. I mean, small town Texas, it's church and football. Exactly. A man named Don Crowder was also a member of the church. He was a successful personal injury attorney who worked in a small firm with a few other lawyers, one of whom served in the state legislature and the other was a young criminal lawyer. After the Sunday service, Don was holding court and suggesting that a drifter was responsible for Betty's death. Candy privately told Don that she was supposed to talk to the police that afternoon and should she be worried. She asked him if he thought she might be a suspect, and he said, no way, Candy. They talk to everybody in this case. Just tell them whatever they want to know and tell them everything you've got and don't worry about it. Three days after the murder, on that Monday, a memorial service was held for Betty Gore. It was held at the United Methodist Church in Lucas, and every newspaper within a 40-mile radius was present. Now, at this church, Kath, Alan Gore was an active member of the choir. He was, I'm going to call him on the management team, but I know that's not the right word. Like, he basically, you know, if the pastor said, okay, we need the parsonage painted, Alan would help him, like, crunch the numbers and figure it out. He was just one of the church leaders. He did a lot for the church, and he sang in the choir, and he knew everybody. Betty was much shyer and did not like the pastor particularly and didn't really go to church. Oh, wow. Yeah. She chose to go elsewhere or not to go at all. And it was really ironic because the pastor she did not like was actually the one who performed the memorial service. Even though Betty was critical of this pastor, and by the way, he was like 25. (laughs) He was a youngster. Yeah, but she was only 30. I know. That's true. They were all children. (laughs) They probably got drunk together in high school and she remembered something and that's why she didn't like him. Well, the pastor before him actually did just that. So maybe that's why she didn't like this guy. I don't know. But but anyway, after she and Alan, after Betty and Alan went to Marriage Encounter Weekend, she was less critical of the pastor and more accepting of them. Nice. So anyway. Police called Candy in for an interview. Present at the interview were Sheriff's Investigator and Crime Scene Photographer Steve Defabaugh, Jim Cochran from the Texas Department of Public Safety, which is the state version of the FBI, and Chief Abbott. By the way, Kat, they wanted somebody from the Texas Department of Public Safety because they thought perhaps it was a serial killer because it was so horrendous. I could see that with the axe. Yeah. They wanted to know why Candy went to see Betty Gore on Friday and asked her to give them a chronology of events. Candy explained after dropping the kids off at Vacation Bible School at the Methodist Church, she left at about 9.45 to go get Alyssa's bathing suit. Candy told investigators that she arrived at Betty's house at 10 a.m., staying only for a short time, possibly 20 or so minutes. After leaving Betty's house, she went to run a few errands, and when she looked at her watch and saw that it said 10.15, she knew that it was broken because of when she'd arrived at Betty's house and how long she'd been there. She asked somebody nearby for the time, and they told her it was already 11.10 a.m., and she returned to the church, arriving at 11.30 a.m., having missed her children's performance. Afterward, she took the kids to run a few more errands, 
and later that evening they watched The Empire Strikes Back at the movie theater. Candy had no idea anything was wrong until Alan Gore started calling her about 8.30 that evening. Detectives asked Candy what she was wearing that day. <laughs> what are you wearing? <laughs> and asked her to bring the clothes to the station for testing. Sheriff's investigator Defabaugh suggested that Candy undergo hypnosis in order to find out whether she remembered anything she had not told them, and Candy agreed to do so. Investigators were trying to figure out if she saw anything suspicious, but it did not register consciously. After the memorial service... It's a busy day. Yeah. Alan Gore went to the police station for a formal interview. So the officers had talked to him a number of times on the phone, but they're like, come on in, we got to take your statement. So Chief Abbott was there with two Texas Rangers. One was Captain Burks and one was a guy named Fred Cummings, who was also a fingerprint expert. Also present was Joe Murphy, who was the head of intelligence for the North Texas region of the Department of Public Safety. And by the way, this guy, Joe Murphy, had a reputation for being really aggressive. And in the book, it says he'll say things like, give them to me. I'm going to break them. Oh, nice. You know what I mean? Like, like he Anger was... Anger issues? No, no. Just like a really <laughs> aggressive interrogator. Before Alan arrived, all of the players involved talked about the possibility that he might be involved. So through the course of the interview, Alan talked about Betty's depression, her fear that she was pregnant, and the fact that he was leaving for a work trip. He said Betty was somber and was normally afraid of being alone. He was not aware of her having any difficulty with anyone in Wiley, except perhaps some troublesome students in her sixth grade class. Alan reviewed his day in great detail, discussing how his calls to Betty went unanswered, causing him to ask his neighbors to break into his home. Murphy asked whether Betty might have had an affair with another man, and Alan admitted that she had a one-night stand with a college student nine years prior when Alan was away on business, so she was 21 years old at the time, but he did not believe she had an affair since then. Murphy then asked Alan whether he had had an affair, and he said no. Alan returned home emotionally exhausted, and reviewing the question in his mind, he came to the conclusion that he was a suspect, so he started getting scared. So Alan was leaving the next morning early for Kansas with Betty's parents and brothers who had come to his home during the memorial, and they were going to go bury her in the state where she grew up. So she was going to Kansas. Before he left at 6 a.m., so this is Tuesday, June 17th, Alan called Chief Abbott and told him that he had lied in the interview. He said he did have an affair, and the affair was with Candy Montgomery. Chief Abbott told Alan, don't worry about it, Candy already gave us this information. But Abbott had lied because he didn't want Alan calling Candy and giving her the heads up. Sneaky. Yes. So here's the deal. Candy and Alan's affair officially started in December of 1978. As we said, everybody belonged to the Methodist Church and Candy and Alan were both in the choir together as was Candy's husband, Pat Montgomery. So what happens is Candy decides that she is not happy in her marriage. She has two kids, a husband, and she's apparently bored and sexually unsatisfied. Desperate housewife. Exactly. So she tells the prior pastor of this little Methodist church, who was a woman named Jackie. She becomes buddy-buddy with Jackie. 
Jackie referred to Betty as a front door friend because she had to maintain propriety and be proper and say the right things. And she referred to Candy as a backdoor friend because she could confide in her. Candy and the pastor became buddies. And Candy even told the pastor that she was intending to have an affair. She said she wanted to have fireworks sex. She was on the prowl for a man to have sex with, despite the fact that Jackie, her pastor, was saying, you know, that's not a good idea. You got to focus on your marriage. So at a Methodist church picnic, Candy and Alan happen to be on the same volleyball team. She runs into Alan, like physically runs into him going for the ball and gets a whiff of him. And was like, oh, he smells good. Animal magnetism. Exactly. This so, dorky computer guy from exactly. Kansas. Yeah. So she kind of starts flirting with them. He's flirting with her a little. And then she's like, you know what? I think this is the guy. I think this is my guy. And so at some point, I feel like it was after choir practice. I'm not 100% sure. Okay, maybe we know why she never had fireworks sex. Yeah. This is what it was leading yeah. her to. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So she gets into his car. She's like, oh, I have something to tell you. And she says, I'm very attracted to you, and I'm tired of thinking about it, and I wanted to tell you. So he is completely shocked. She's got clanking balls. Clank, clank, totally. So he's completely shocked. He does not know what to do with it because he's an engineer type, and he's like, does not compute, does not compute. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, and Betty was his first real girlfriend, so he couldn't really believe that some woman was interested in him sexually. So I don't know how much time went by, like a week or two. At some point, he says, can we talk? And so he gets into the passenger seat of her car and she says, would you be interested in having an affair? And he goes, I don't know what to say. And she goes, it's just something I've been thinking about and I wanted to say it so I don't have to think about it anymore. So he originally says, no, Candy, I don't think I can do that. Well, of course, now the devil's sitting on the shoulder, right? And so he's like ruminating, thinking, thinking, thinking. Thinking what his wife is like and how regimented she is. So he calls Candy and says, well, what do you mean? What do you have in mind? Okay, so they have three meetings. When I say meetings, like they met for lunch during work hours while her two kids were being babysat or in daycare or school or whatever it was, and they would have a discussion. So they had three cold discussions in in the light of day about what their affair would entail. Like parameters for the affair? Totally. It, Ooh, it was there, sexy. It was, I know. But at the same time, I'm like horrified, but I'm impressed. Like No, horrified. No. Well, the whole thing is horrifying. Yes, exactly. But I mean, it's like they were super analytical about it. She invited him over to lunch and she had butcher paper on her wall. On one side, it said, why and why not? So they decide they're going to actually do the nasty. They're going to consummate this Horrible, horrible idea. So they set a list. They write rules for themselves. Like, you cannot fall in love. We will split the motel bills and the food expenses 50-50. Like, it was completely like that, okay? The whole you do not fall in love tells me somebody watched a few too many Hallmark movies. So I want to read this part because I totally threw up in my mouth a little bit. Oh, please. (laughs) Let's let everybody throw up in their mouth. If you're driving, pull over. (laughs) So... What they would do is they would meet every other week, and it was always when her kids, you know, were handled like they were at school or being babysat or whatever. They would meet at a motel of her choosing. No tell motel. Exactly. She would bring a picnic lunch that she would make. Like, she would spend time preparing a hot meal. So they got this hotel called the Como Motel. Candy, this is the motel. Candy always said it smelled like old money. The very sleaziness of the place is what made it so illicit and so much fun. The room was a little more than a cubicle, 10 by 10 at most. The shag carpet was matted (laughs) like dirty hair. (laughs) 
Oh my god! I mean, I, you when know, she said "old money," I thought she meant like old money, like really wealthy people. Old yeah, money. No, no, she, just she meant the old stink money. Of old money. Yeah, yeah. But when I like the the shag carpet was matted like dirty hair. Anyway, so this thing begins in December. She tries to break it off at some point within the next few months. Basically, she said it became more about the conversation. It was more an emotional affair at that point than That's a sexual exactly one. right. And they were both unhappy in their marriage and they were relating well to each other. And so counseling each other. Yeah. So anyways, certainly into the fair, she says, Hey Alan, I think we should break it off because I think you're feeling too much for me. And so the deal was every other week. So he's like, Well, hey, hold on a second. No, you know, everything's good, blah, 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 blah. Fast forward, he's now thinking we need to break it off. So what happens is his wife was becoming depressed. She was despondent over a number of things and unhappy. So they decide to go to a marriage encounter weekend. They go to the marriage encounter weekend in October of 1979. But it had been a long time since Candy and Alan had a regular pattern of meeting in motels. Before the marriage encounter, Alan breaks it off with Candy and now she's upset. So when he goes to Marriage Encounter in October of 1979, Candy knows that the affair is definitely over. So that was the deal, the backstory on the affair. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Naturally, investigators brought Alan back to the station for a second interview to question him about his relationship with Candy. Investigators believed that love and lust was the motive for Betty's murder, and Alan was somehow involved. Alan said he was willing to take a polygraph and denied killing his wife, denied knowing who did, and denied knowing who would want to. Tuesday morning, June 17th, the day following the burial and four days after Betty's murder, Crime scene investigator Dr. Stone and the coroner, Dr. DeMaio, realized that the nail found at the scene did not match the victim. Now, remember, this is the one the policeman found, and Dr. Stone asked him to hang on to it, and the police officer put it on a counter instead. Exactly. The problem was the evidence bag that held the fingernail was now almost irrelevant because the chain of custody was such a mess. It was literally Kathy, like, he put it on the counter, another officer picked it up. Like, it was everybody had handled this nail, so there was no true chain of custody. Right. But they all agreed they had the murderer's nail, shoe prints, a photograph of a bloody thumbprint, and strands of hair. The next day, Chief Abbott called Candy in for another interview. The first thing Candy was asked to do was give fingerprints, which she did. Then, the chief and Cochran and Murphy, who were both with the Department of Public Safety, crowded into the office for Candy's interview. 
she repeated the same version of events, adding more details this time. They asked if she and Alan were having an affair, and she said no. They asked her if she knew if Alan was having an affair, and she said no. They then asked her if she had had an affair, and she admitted she had. They then asked her with whom, and she said Alan Gore. Candy insisted that she was the aggressor in the relationship and told them it had been over for at least eight months. She admitted her husband found out about the affair and felt angry and hurt, but did not dwell on it. She also admitted she did not want the relationship to end, but it had to. Let me just tell you how the husband found out. Okay, yes. This is so horrible. Okay. Oh. <laughs> so, so Candy, again, very actively involved in the Methodist church. She was at a women's retreat. Her husband was missing her. So, and I believe this was on a Friday. He goes to her drawer where she kept letters from the summer that they first met and started dating. And so he used to reread them every so often, just like, oh, we're so lucky, blah, 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 blah. Well, he goes and he can't find the letters, but he sees the letter from Alan. Alan wrote Candy a letter when it was time for them to break up. And he referenced in the letter their sexual experiences and how he thought Candy was cold. What? Yes, toward the end of the relationship. Well, if that's not going to make you get over a guy, I don't know what will. Exactly. Anyway, so the bottom line is Candy's husband, Pat, reads this letter and first he's angry, then he's sad. So he goes through all of these horrible stages of grief. Now, remember, it's 1980. There's no cell phones. He can't even communicate with his wife oh. <laughs> until Sunday. <laughs> so letter hard evidence because she was stupid enough to keep it. Yes. Can you and believe that? he can't do anything about it until she comes home. Right. So, of course, what does he do? He calls her best friend, this woman named Sherry, and goes, Sherry, is the affair over? And Sherry's like, what? He goes, I know about the affair with Alan Gore. Is it over? And Sherry says, yes, it is. And then he tells Sherry, don't tell Candy we have this conversation. I want to talk to her fresh. And of course, what does the best friend do? Oh, she do? tells her. Tells her. Candy answers the phone like immediately when she gets home and she's like, your husband knows, your husband knows. I mean, like, whatever. Of course. You wouldn't yeah. be a best friend if you didn't. So Pat Montgomery has the patience to wait until Sunday night. And so he raises the issue with her. Something, of course, she's been dreading because now she knows. She just starts crying and, and saying, I'm, oh, I'm so... I'm so ashamed. I'm so ashamed. I'm so ashamed. So he forgives her. All right. So back to Candy's interview. She admits that she had an affair and said her husband's not bothered by it. Then Cummings, the fingerprint expert, comes into the room with the picture of the fingerprint and lays it on the desk. Investigator Murphy then got aggressive. You murdered Betty, didn't you? No, I didn't. Yes, you did. You're nothing but a murderer. Betty was your friend and you chopped and you chopped and you chop and you're nothing but a cold-blooded murderer and you sit there and you lie to us about it and you make me sick. I can't even stay in this room anymore. Oh, drama. Yeah. So he storms out. Now good cop comes, right? So Cochran comes in and he asks Candy, Candy, do you need to get something off your chest? And Candy said, I didn't murder Betty. So then she agreed to take a polygraph the next day. So then Candy accused the officers of trying to pin something on her and manipulate her into admitting something that wasn't true. So Cochran walks her to her car and notices a pair of rubber-soled sandals. Basically, they used to call them thongs in the book. It's all thongs, but now they're flip-flops. Anyway, so he says, oh, hey, by the way, can I take those? And she goes, sure. And then he asks her, can I have the blue tennis shoes that you're wearing as well? Because she said she was wearing those on Friday morning. She's like, fine, take these. 
Cochran says, look, if you pass the polygraph tomorrow, I will apologize to you. That same Wednesday, five days after Betty's murder, Pat Montgomery called the only attorney he knew, 38-year-old personal injury lawyer Don Crowder. Yes, that was the guy from their church. Pat was panicking, telling Don that the cops fingerprinted Candy and accused her of the murder and discussed her taking a polygraph. Don asked Pat to bring Candy and come over to his office, and once they were there, they started discussing details. Don asked Pat to retain him so it would be confidential information. Pat wrote a check for $100, and then Don asked Pat to leave the room. Don told Candy she would not take a polygraph, saying they were unreliable and it could hurt her. He said they had their own polygraph person to test her. Don assigned their matter to his colleague, 27-year-old Rob Udashin. Rob was alarmed when Candy informed them that the police could match her fingerprints and her shoe prints to the crime scene. The day after the interview in Don's office, his law clerk, Elaine Carpenter, took Candy to St. Paul's Hospital for an exam. Candy was examined by a doctor who recorded bruises on her upper thighs and chest, as well as discolorations on her fingers, ankles, and one breast. He noted a cut to the hairline on her forehead, which was now scabbed over, as well as an injury to her toe. Don Crowder and Rob Udashin told police that Candy would not submit to their polygraph. They eventually hired their own polygraph examiner, Don McElroy, who conducted a two-hour examination of Candy. In the next few weeks, media revealed that there was a positive identification on the bloody thumbprint on the freezer door from the prints taken from Candy Montgomery. They matched. Don Crowder, Candy's lawyer, became a media gadfly. His partner and co-counsel, Rob Udashin, who was supposed to be handling the matter, kept telling Don to stop talking to the media. Don impugned the police, and it seemed like every time he did, more news was leaked to the public, which huh. cracks me up. Coinky-ding. Exactly. He was saying things like, well, they haven't arrested her. Of course she's not a murderer. And then suddenly, They were like, look, the bloody fingerprint matches. Exactly. Like, nice. All, all that kind of stuff happened. Don continued to give press interviews, trashing the prosecution's case and challenging their veracity because they had not yet charged Candy with a crime. In the meantime, Allen submitted to a polygraph test, which he passed, so he was eliminated as a suspect. Based on reading the newspapers, the lawyers knew that Candy's arrest was imminent. So what happens is Rob calls the police and goes, hey, look, I don't want my client paraded in to the police station in no handcuffs. Perp walk. Exactly. No perp walk for this gal. So let's just agree that, you know, she's going to submit herself once you issue an arrest warrant. So the officer said, OK. Rob knew that her bond was going to be $100,000. And so they hire this bail bondsman and they're just messing and messing and messing with things like Candy and her husband, Pat, had to put up their home as collateral for the bond. So things were slow. And so they kept not bringing Candy to the police station, not bringing Candy to the police station. And they had this guy, Judge Ryan, who was waiting for the bail hearing. So finally at 11 p.m. Ooh, he wasn't happy. Yeah. Judge Ryan is now furious and he's like, get her in here. You know, so Candy basically comes in to the courthouse surrendering. And by this time, it's a media circus. They've oh, all been notified that she is surrendering herself and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, because the bail bondsman was not prepared, like the bail had not been perfected, she had to go spend the night in jail. At the time she goes into jail, she gets strip searched and deputies notice her injuries. 
They take her to the Collin Memorial Hospital in handcuffs for an examination to make sure she's okay. And they photograph all of the injuries that existed on her body at the time she was presented to jail. So these are the same injuries that Dawn, her attorney, had already had documented. Correct. But of course, they don't know that. Right. This is twofold. They want to make sure that they are not accused of abusing a prisoner in custody. But also the implication is like, oh, look, she was in a fight. After one night in jail, Candy was arraigned. She pled not guilty, posted a bond and was released pending trial. According to the Dallas Morning News, on June 27th, 1980, Candy was a hottie. Okay, no. Uh-uh. I'm done. You read. I'm out. Continue. No. It's your turn. No. No. <laughs> and she looked like little orphan Annie with her hairstyle and round, oversized glasses. That's kind of funny. It is kind of funny. She also had a brazen smirk on her face. Candy became the archetypical scarlet woman. Her attitude and expressions apparently did not help her because she appeared defiant. The media could not get enough of the story and took any opportunity to get a photograph of her. Eventually, Doug Swanson and Tim Jarrell of the Dallas Herald Times broke the news of Candy's affair with Alan Gore. The article detailed the fact that Candy was the last person to see Betty alive, the hour and a half when nobody saw her, the bloody thumbprint on the freezer door that matched Candy, the cut found on Candy's toe, the bruises on her legs and bloody footprints in Betty's house that were small enough to belong to a woman. There was an outpouring of support in the community as well as support from marriage encounter couples, but there was also extreme derision. Kat, this was kind of the turning point. So everyone was supportive of Candy and her attorney. He was getting his face in front of the media at every opportunity to defend her. But because she was this like churchy church lady, everybody's like, there's no way she could do that with an axe. Bless her heart. Yeah. And then it came out that she was having an affair and things turned. Almost one month after Betty Gore was murdered on July 9th, 1980, an indictment was handed down against Candy Montgomery. That's quick. Very fast. An article in the morning news ran a story saying that Candy had secretly confessed to the brutal axe murder of Betty Gore following a polygraph exam. After reading this, Rob Udashin called the assistant DA asking for a gag order hearing, and everyone agreed. Rob also wanted Don to stop talking to the press. Judge Ryan agreed to impose a gag order. The trial started on Monday, August 20th, 1980, just over four months after Betty's death. By this time, Don Crowder, who had never tried a criminal case, took over as lead counsel. The prosecutor was District Attorney Tom O'Connell. What, dear? This is the part where they questioned potential jurors to see if they should be on the jury. Consisted of a typical discussion about the facts to be shown, the circumstantial evidence, and reasonable doubt. He also talked about the presumption of innocence and the ultimate fact he intended to prove, that the defendant killed Betty Gore. Don Crowder took a different approach. He touched on some basic requirements of proof beyond reasonable doubt, then paused for a moment and said, it's not proper of me to discuss the facts with you at this time. And of course, Mr. O'Connell did not discuss the facts with you either. But there is something I've got to tell you now for me to be able to discuss the law with you. On Friday, June 13th, 1980, Candace Montgomery 
killed Betty Gore. She did so with an axe, and she did so in self-defense. The homicide was justified, and we have chosen not to try her case in the papers. That is the reason you have never heard this before from anybody until now. This is the place where the trial takes place, right now, right here. This is where it all starts and where all of the evidence will come from. If you're going to convict, make sure it comes from there. And he was pointing to the witness stand when he said that. Some jurors started crying. Don Crowder then explained Texas law as it relates to self-defense. He also admitted that Candy had an affair. Mrs. Montgomery has sinned. She acknowledges it. But she is not on trial here for that sin. Some of you, I'm sure many of you, are Christians on this panel. I am sure many of you have very strong feelings about the seventh commandment about adultery. There's nothing wrong with having those strong feelings, and I'm not asking you to forgive her. But we are asking, can you decide this case on this evidence without letting the affair muddle your mind? If you cannot, please speak up now. We weren't able to find numbers, but it was noted that some jurors were excused. Correct. The prosecution's first witness was Alan Gore. He was unemotional, barely raised his voice above an audible level, and recited the facts coolly. Betty's father thought this was very odd. Alan described his frantic calls trying to locate his wife and Candy's response. The prosecution also had Alan identify the blood-spattered axe. He still did not break down. The prosecution got into the affair, and Alan testified the decision to terminate the relationship was a mutual one. On cross-examination, defense counsel had Alan testify about the friendship between Betty and Candy, detailing several occasions when they visited each other or mixed socially. He then asked, Do you know any motive that Candace Montgomery would have to kill your wife? Alan responded, No, I do not. Don got Alan to admit the affair was an intellectual one and not based on sex. To his knowledge, Candy had never been in his garage or seen his acts. Don also got Alan to admit that Candy had a reputation for being a peaceable, law-abiding citizen and that her reputation was good. The prosecution called police witnesses who were at the scene that night. Dr. Irving Stone was also called to the stand. He was the one who collected the evidence, the hair, the shoe prints, the bloody fingerprint, and the broken glasses found in the garage, as well as the fingernail that matched Candy. As far as the broken glasses that were found in the garage, Kath, they took them from the garage. That's where they collected them from. However, because the lens was in an entirely different part of the house, and they weren't sure exactly where it landed, and... People were coming in and out, in and out, in and out. They weren't sure that these broken glasses were actually found in the garage originally. They think an officer might have left them there. They weren't sure. But they were Candy's glasses, and they were trying to imply that these glasses were in the garage because she went in there to get the axe. However, the chain of custody was so bad, they pretty much became irrelevant. The Texas Rangers were also called to discuss their interviews with Candy, and Fred Cummings testified that Candy's fingerprint matched the bloody thumbprint in the photograph. Dr. DeMaio, the Dallas County Medical Examiner, testified that there were 41 chop wounds in all, 40 of which occurred while Betty's heart was still beating. Now, this does not necessarily mean she was conscious, 
but it was still beating. He testified the blows appeared random and that a scared person can be stronger and quicker than they normally are. He stated that there was nothing that would rule out the fact that Candy Montgomery acted in self-defense and killing Betty Gore. Don Crowder was surprised when the prosecution rested and he asked the judge to recess until the next day. But of course, Judge Ryan was like, um, no, (laughs) call your first witness. And so he was like, uh, yo, my first witness is going to be Candy Montgomery, but she took a tranquilizer and the judge is like, well, I'll give her a 10 minute recess. Too bad. So sad. Yeah, exactly. So in the book, it said she had like glazed eyes and (laughs) that was a good tranquilizer. But the judge is like, whatever, man, you get a 10 minute recess. And that's like OG stuff, not like the Xanax that we get now. It's probably like ketamine. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Late in the afternoon on October 23rd, 1980, the reporter's attorneys and a packed courtroom got what they had finally come to see. When Candy Montgomery took the stand, she was cool and her voice was clipped. Don began questioning her about her children, her upbringing, her church activities, and Candy was not good at expounding. Well, it's hard to do that when you're drugged to the gills. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So she gave really short functional answers, which did not make her lawyer very happy. (laughs) Don was concerned that she sounded like an over-enunciating schoolmarm. Wow, that's awfully specific. Exactly. He said there was no emotion in her voice. Don knew he had to elicit some kind of emotion from Candy and decided he needed to be brutal about it. Real quick, Kath. When Candy was put in jail, she made a very specific and conscious decision to not be emotional. She wasn't going to let anybody see her get upset. She was acting like this whole thing was water off a duck's back. So kind of (laughs) crazy. That is crazy. Yeah. Dawn took Candy directly to the day of Betty Gore's murder and made her describe every detail that she could remember. He needed to make her reveal something about herself besides the tightly controlled, frigid woman that she was. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I'm paraphrasing, but I think everybody here agrees. Yeah. As it turned out, two months prior to the trial, most of the facts that occurred in the utility room remained unknown. Dawn hired a psychiatrist. Dr. Fred Faison, who had six sessions with Candy, three of which included hypnosis. The doctor forced her to recall and repeat the events of the morning of Betty's death. When her conscious story conflicted with her unconscious story, he forced her to admit facts that she would rather have forgotten. After the six intensive sessions, the reconstruction of the killing of Betty Gore emerged. Candy testified that she got to Betty's home and asked if Alyssa could spend another night and go to the movies. Betty seemed distracted and said yes. When Betty offered her coffee, she declined. Candy lamented the fact that baby Bethany was in bed and could not play. Betty reminded Candy of six-year-old Alyssa's swimming lessons, at which point Candy also reminded Betty of her new business called Cover Girls for wallpapering and painting and left her business card. Then Candy told Betty she needed to run errands and needed to get going, but that she needed Alyssa's bathing suit for the swimming lessons. Betty was sitting at this point and did not stir. Her face was blank, her eyes unfocused, and Betty calmly said, Candy, are you having an affair with Alan? Candy was stunned and said, oh, no, of course not. Betty squinted and said, but you did, didn't you? Candy said yes, but it was a long time ago. Candy even asked if Alan told her. 
Betty told Candy to wait a minute and got up from her chair and walked into the utility room and out of sight. Betty reappeared in the doorway with an axe clutched in her hand. Okay, at which point do you just run? I know, I know. Holy cow. Yeah, holy cow was right. Candy stood up and did not move from her chair. Betty told her, I don't want you to ever see him again. You cannot have him. Candy told Betty to stop being ridiculous because it was over a long time ago. I'm not really sure. That's that a I, little insulting. I was going to say, yeah, antagonize I don't, I don't the know, like, older. Yeah, exactly. If somebody were like, calm down, you know, you're being ridiculous. It was over a long time ago. That's when I would like. That's yeah. when the throat punch comes in. I was in. just going to say throat punch. I was just going to say that. There's a reason we're friends. <laughs> Betty ordered Candy not to see her husband again as Candy reached down to pick up her purse. Candy told Betty that she would bring Alyssa home and drop her off after vacation Bible school. But Betty said, no, I don't want to see you anymore. Just keep Alyssa and take her to the movies, and I don't want to look at you again. Bring her home tomorrow. Betty laid the axe against the wall inside the living room and walked past Candy, telling her to get Alyssa's bathing suit out of the washing machine. Candy went into the utility room and found the swimsuit on top of the washing machine, but as she turned around, Betty was right behind her. Betty's anger appeared to have subsided, and she told Candy not to forget the peppermints because that's how they rewarded Alyssa during swim practice. Betty went to get the peppermints and came back to the utility room to give them to Candy. And by the way, in the book, it says how Candy's like, I have my own peppermints. It's okay. Candy thought Betty looked like she was going to cry. And Candy placed her arm on Betty's arm and said, oh, Betty, I'm so sorry. Bless your heart. Betty erupted into a rage, shoved Candy, who stumbled backwards into the utility room, and then Betty grabbed the axe that was resting by the doorway. Betty rushed at her screaming, You can't have him. I'm going to have a baby. And you can't have him this time. Candy said she did not want Alan, and both women were gripping the axe handle. Candy pleaded with Betty to stop, but Betty said, I've got to kill you, in a distracted and impersonal way. They grappled for control of the axe, and the flat side of the axe jerked up, and hit Candy in the head. So Candy stepped backwards, and she now has blood streaming down her face. Like, that was the first, like, blood to be shed, so to speak. She sees that she's bleeding, and Betty raises the axe and screams at the top of her lungs. She swings the axe and misses, but the blade hit the ground, bounced up, and landed on Candy's toe and gashed it. So now Candy's bleeding from her toe and from her head. Both women were fighting over the axe, and the struggle degenerated into a wrestling match. Betty thrust and jabbed the axe at Candy's body, kicking her legs and kneeing her in the thigh. At one point, Candy was bitten on the knuckle by Betty. Candy shoved the axe against Betty's body, causing her to fall. Candy then grabbed the axe, using both hands, brought the blade down on the back of Betty's head... Betty began slumping over, but then seemed to regain consciousness and struggled to her feet. So Candy tries leaving through the door. She wants to get out of the utility room and into the living room, and she's trying to leave. But Betty slammed her against the door. Betty picks up the axe, and Candy is supposedly begging Betty to let her go, and Betty tells her, I can't. So they're jockeying for position, Betty grabs Candy's hair, and Candy slipped on the blood and went down. Betty tried to raise the axe again, but she was too weak, and Candy begged, please let me go. 
I don't want your husband. I don't want him. Betty placed one finger on her lips and still gripping the axe, she shushed Candy. She simply said, shh. So Candy jerks violently, leans forward with all her might in this tug of war, gets the axe, raises it with all her strength, and it comes down on the top of Betty's head. And then she does it again and again and again and again. And she did not stop until she was completely and totally exhausted. Candy had destroyed Betty's face, and now her life would change forever. She noticed blood all over her maroon blouse and blue jeans. She walked through the living room into the bathroom and stepped into the bathtub, keeping her clothes on and taking a shower. And by the way, Candy was wearing flip-flops. Candy then tried scrubbing the utility room floor, but the blood kept spreading, so she tossed the towel aside. She left by the front door, closing it behind her, with her toe bleeding and her head bleeding, and she was soaking wet. She looked at her watch, and it was 10.20. She still needed to get the Father's Day cards. She went home got a similar-looking pair of jeans, washed the maroon blouse and put it back on, and then threw her flip-flops away. Candy testified that she had genuine anger to that day because the whole thing seemed so pointless. She said that Betty put her in a position that caused her to lose everything. On direct examination, Don Crowder got aggressive with Candy again. You killed her with the axe, didn't you? Yes. This axe right here. Don't make me look at it. Don grabbed the axe with both hands, brought it up into full view, and thrust it into Candy's face. Candy yelled, don't, and screamed at the top of her lungs and then burst into tears. Her attorney said, you killed her with the axe right here, didn't you? Yes. And Don took the axe away. One of the jurors was crying and others were squirming in their seats. Don led Candy through the rest of the day, the phone calls from Alan Gore, and Candy admitted to all of her cover-ups and evasion following the killing. During cross-examination, there was no hesitation in her answers, and there were no contradictions. Isn't it true that if we had not found your fingerprints, you might never have told the true story? I doubt it. I don't think I could have lived with it for very long. But the prosecution brought out the fact that until the fingerprints came to light, Candy had not told anyone the truth. The prosecution also asked her if Allen was the only affair she had. Judge Ryan overruled the defense objection and forced Candy to admit that she had a second affair. She would not give the name, but the prosecutor forced her to say his name and also brought out any little fact that the defense did not bring out during direct examination. He brought out the fact that she prided herself on her motherhood but left a one-year-old baby alone in the house with no one to care for her. And he repeatedly pointed out Candy's multiple lies. The most important remaining witness was Dr. Fred Faison, the psychiatrist who testified that he saw Candy on six occasions, three of which he hypnotized her. He also testified that she had a dissociative reaction. He further testified that it began when Candy was four years old and continued to the present as if it were a constant condition of her personality. Dr. Faison described how Candy, led through hypnosis, described what happened in the utility room. And when she reached the point of the shushing, her age regressed and caused her to discover an incident that happened when she was four. Dr. Faison said Candy went berserk in the utility room 
because there was a connection between the earlier incident and the shushing by Betty in the heat of the struggle. The blind rage was a result of a lot of things, and Candy said it herself of the hostilities building up inside her for 26 years. Dr. Faison emphatically stated that Candy never consciously intended to take Betty Gore's life. She unconsciously turned into a killing machine with quite literally blind rage. So, Kath, what happened when she was four is that she was racing to a water pump. And whoever got to the water pump first got to pump the water into this glass jar. So whoever, I want to say it was a cousin. Anyway, she's racing a boy. He beats her to the water pump and she's so angry. She takes the glass jar and throws it. It smashes against the water pump. A piece of glass bounces back and cuts her face. So she has to go to the emergency room. So what happens is her mom was one of these moms that was super uptight about appearances, of course, back then. She is a four-year-old. She is in the emergency room screaming her head off. And so nurses are holding her down while the doctor is trying to stitch her. And her mother says, shh, what will the people in the waiting room think of you? And so Dr. Faison believed that she had repressed rage her entire life for having to appear perfect at all times. On Wednesday, October 29, 1980, after nine days of trial, the defense rested its case and it was now up to the jury. After almost three and a half hours of deliberations, the nine-woman, three-man jury announced they had a verdict. This was so fast, none of the attorneys expected it. They file into the courtroom, and the jury foreperson reads the verdict. Not guilty. After the verdict, there was no celebration at the courthouse. As the Montgomery's started down the courthouse steps, the crowd were yelling, Murderer! 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 Here's the thing that I read, Kath. That night, the Montgomery's invited a small group of friends over for champagne and bologna and cheese sandwiches. <laughs> well, first of all, with the champagne, know the public perception. Come on. Right. The second thing, bologna and cheese. Sweetie, I know you're out of jail, but you're an 80s housewife. Whip something up. I mean, <laughs> bologna and cheese. The jurors suffered a lot of derision. And the juror foreperson was a military man. And he basically said, hey, look, we took a blind vote. And I love the way he conducted the deliberations because everything was completely anonymous. They were talking about things like, we don't like the fact that she had an affair. And then the jury foreperson's like, I don't like the fact that she had an affair, but that's not part of the consideration. It doesn't make her a murderer. Yeah. And so they all fairly quickly got to the point where she did not commit murder, but did she commit manslaughter? There was some debate on that. But then they went through all the evidence and they're like, no. So three and a half hours. So the defense was not expecting a verdict this quickly. To well, say and the I least. bet the prosecutors expected it to be guilty because it was so quick. Because it was so quick. Yeah. Betty's dad, Bob Pomeroy, checked out of his motel in McKinney as soon as the verdict was rendered. He was frustrated and disappointed with his interaction with the district attorney, with the prosecution team, and with the police. He just never felt like they had enough time to explain anything to him so that by the time trial was over, he felt that he knew less about his daughter's death than he had known before the trial. Mr. Pomeroy had very little interest in the question of whether Candy Montgomery had been technically innocent or guilty. He had no anger that she was going free. 
A thought had suddenly occurred to him as he was watching the closing arguments during the trial, and as he drove back to Kansas, he couldn't shake it. When defense attorney Don Crowder had started to make his summation, he had spent 20 minutes on Allen's testimony. Almost everything Allen had said benefited the defense. Mr. Pomeroy had known that Allen was a strange bird, and he'd been acting weird since the killing, but he had never wanted to face the possibility that Allen simply did not care whether Betty lived or died. Suddenly, Bob felt tired and much, much older. Many of you may have heard recently about the Candy Montgomery case. Hulu and HBO Max are going to be doing shows. Now, the weird thing, Kathy, is you ran into Jessica Biel in an airport That's a couple right. months ago. <laughs> we feel like we may have planted the seed for it because all of a sudden she's doing I was like, hey, it. we're doing this podcast. And she was like, no way. I want to play somebody. Yeah. And you're like, hey, <laughs> by the call way. Call your agent. Line it up. <laughs> and then it's happening. We had planned to do this podcast earlier, but the timing of it's great. So... I'm sure they will go into much greater detail than we could in our time with you all. Right. So if you want to learn more, we'd suggest you go to the show. Otherwise, please share with your friends. Exactly. 